my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your tour guide through hell, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode will cover urban legends, evil folklore, and sour zombies. Grab a shovel and follow me. It's time to dig up some movies. Number one, Urban Legend 1998, directed by Jamie Blanks. A girl named Michelle is killed by a figure in the back seat of her van. We jump to Pendleton University and meet Natalie, her friend Brenda, and some others. More people are killed based on urban legends. A journalist named Paul teams up with Natalie to try to figure out what's going on. It's revealed that Michelle and Natalie were friends who accidentally killed a guy while recreating the flashing headlights urban legend. More people die. Natalie hears Brenda screaming and runs to her aid. Brenda then ties up Natalie and reveals the guy Natalie killed was her boyfriend. Paul and a campus security guard show up and help Natalie. Natalie shoots Brenda, who then falls out a window. Natalie and Paul drive off and are attacked by Brenda, who's still alive in the back seat. Paul slams on the brakes and sends Brenda flying out the windshield. Sometime later, Brenda is shown to be still alive at the school. Michelle, Natalie, and Brenda are the killers. Natalie is not getting a pass for only being a passenger in the car as Michelle ran Brenda's boyfriend off the road to his death. That kill was based on the urban legend, or UL as the movie Urban Legend shorthands it, that if you flash your lights at a car that has their headlights off, they'll murder you. How do I even begin talking about urban legend? This movie was released in 1998 and is 90s to its core. There's a scene where Natalie's goth roommate has to get off the internet so Natalie can use the phone. Ah! Speaking of Natalie's goth roommate, her name is Tosh, and she's played by Danielle Harris. She played Mary Beth in the Hatchet sequels. I hated her as Mary Beth, but she's not putting on a terrible fake southern accent in Urban Legend. Her death is the old roommate doesn't turn on the light and see the dead body until the morning, UL. You know... The aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light thing? What other UL deaths happen? Let me sprint through them. The couple hanging out in a car which ends with the boy's body scratching the roof due to being hanged above the car happens. We get the ankle slasher hiding under a car. Pet warning, dog dried in the microwave. This isn't disturbing in the least and is actually pretty hilarious. And we also get a Pop Rocks and Coke or a Drano death. For the most part, all the deaths are boring. This is one of the most PG-13 R-rated movies I've ever seen. There is some gore, but the only gore that looks decent in any way is shown when the Dean character has his ankle sliced. Blood starts gushing all over the place. 
Besides that, the gore is terrible. This movie is chock full of references. I'm not even going to try to list them, but we'll let you know that Robert England, Mr. Kruger, plays a professor, and Brad Dorif, the voice of Chucky, plays a gas station attendant. The acting leans a bit into cheesy, but for the most part is passable throughout. The worst actor is probably Tara Reid. Has anyone ever been excited to see Tara Reid in a movie? Jared Leto plays Paul. His acting is also terrible, and he looks like a fake person. He kinda looks like a plasticky knockoff Jake Gyllenhaal. There's a point where his character comes around a corner slow clapping while Brenda is holding Natalie at gunpoint. It would have been hilarious if Brenda just shot him. Rebecca Gay Hart plays Brenda. I liked her in this. She acts like an idiot up until the reveal, which makes sense. Brenda being the killer was called as soon as I was told Michelle and Natalie killed a guy. I thought the dude was Brenda's brother though. Still counts. I'm surprised that Brenda gives Michelle, the actual driver, the quick first death and strings along Natalie instead. You'd think she'd want to punish Michelle more severely. To be fair, Natalie is the worst. She bails on multiple people to save herself. It actually doesn't make any sense that she'd try to help a screaming Brenda. I totally understand the save yourself mentality, but it's bad writing to have Natalie randomly decide to try and help someone at the expense of her own safety after leaving multiple people to die. It is hilarious when Brenda knocks out Natalie with one punch. I also loved watching Brenda fly through two windows. Brenda the unkillable. Her flying out windows reminded me of how Hitler escapes by jumping out a window at the end of practically every episode of the first season of Danger 5. Check out Danger 5 if you haven't. Back to Urban Legend. There's a part where Tara Reid, a campus radio DJ, runs away from the killer. Tara has on a wireless headset though, so you hear her running away and screaming. Really, Urban Legend? You can't be on the phone and internet at the same time, but I'm supposed to believe that this college radio station has an amazing wireless headset like this? I wouldn't give it a second thought if we weren't shown the horribly aged internet scene. It looks like Bluetooth came out in 1999, so we got ourselves an anachronism. Tara Reid, Disc Jockey Time Traveler. In Urban Legend, we get to watch Michelle sing along terribly to Total Eclipse of the Heart, which I found incredibly endearing. I guess that's how I feel about Urban Legend. It's a mediocre yet endearing late 90s slasher. You know exactly what you're going to get with one of these. Bad sound effects, meh acting, and cheese. It's fun enough though, and I recommend checking it out. One last thing to mention, Natalie and Brenda have no idea how Bloody Mary works. They walk up to an abandoned house and say Bloody Mary over and over while staring at the front door. You need a mirror, you idiots. There are two sequels to Urban Legend, so you know the drill. Number 2, Urban Legends, Final Cut, 2000, directed by John Ottman. A girl named Amy is trying to finish film school. Her talented director friend Travis commits suicide after getting a bad grade on his film. Travis's twin brother, Trevor, shows up. Reese, the campus security guard from the first movie, is back at the new school. A killer who wears a fencing mask begins murdering people. Amy finds out that someone stole Travis's real movie, which is supposed to be incredible. 
It's revealed that one of the film teachers, Professor Solomon, killed Travis and everyone who worked on Travis's film in order to steal it and become famous, since Solomon never got his chance in Hollywood after Amy's dad didn't vote for Solomon's movie back in the day. Amy stops Professor Solomon by shooting him in the stomach and goes on to make more movies. We then see Professor Solomon being wheeled around in a psychiatric facility by Brenda, the original killer who appears to be a nurse there. Professor Solomon is the killer. Urban Legends Final Cut is the second of three movies, so it's not actually the final cut. Then why is that the title? It's about college kids trying to make moving pictures. Josh. Why did you decide to watch other movies in the Urban Legends series? Well, listener, Ava Mendez. I've had a crush on her since Too Fast, Too Furious, so as soon as I saw she was in Urban Legends Final Cut, I decided to give it a go. Her performance is fine for the small amount of time she's in the movie. Her death is definitely the lamest. She's hanged from a bell in the campus tower. No one in this movie does an amazing job when it comes to acting. Jennifer Morrison, who's best known for her stint as Dr. Allison Cameron on the show House, is Amy, our final girl. She's not great in this. I liked her in House. Other recognizable faces include Anthony Anderson and Michael Bacall. I will never stop getting him confused with Thomas Ian Nicholas. You know, the Rookie of the Year. Bacall is not... The Rookie of the Year, but he is in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Final Cut is a lot of fun, surprisingly. Like the first one, it was released in theaters, which is normally a good sign when it comes to the quality of horror sequels. If it was at least released in theaters, it can't be that bad. The third installment went straight to DVD, and I'll get to that in a bit. Urban Legends Final Cut is a good sequel. Like the first, it has a ton of references. The students are trying to win the Hitchcock Award. Amy is startled by a seagull at one point. I'm not going to dive into all the references, but I appreciated them. This time around, the killer wears a fencing mask, which is a much better look than the dumb coat from the first movie. We also get some legit gore. For the first kill, a girl has her kidney cut out. You know, to complete the whole wake up in a bathtub of ice urban legend thing that the first movie ended on. She comes to and tries to escape through a window, while halfway through, the killer pulls her back in, which breaks the window, and then shuts the now guillotine-esque window on the victim's neck, giving us a fantastic decapitation. The girl that loses her head totally deserved it because hours prior she was in a bar and whistled across the room at the bartender for drinks like some kind of douchebag heathen. In regards to the gore and the rest of the film, there is some nice makeup for an electrically burned face after the character Bacall plays is electrocuted. When Amy fulfills the final girl sees all the dead bodies trope, the bodies look great. The only standout kill is the window guillotine though. There is a lot of dumb stuff in Urban Legends Final Cut. There's a film set with a fake dead dog with its guts splattered all over the floor. The gang was filming the Humans Can Lick 2 Urban Legend about the guy under the bed. I hate the version that has Humans Can Lick 2 on the mirror. The good version lets the listener come to the conclusion that the psycho was under the bed instead of having it all spelled out on the mirror. The fake dog looks really similar to the one used in Chud. Anyway, 
A girl goes to the set because she can't find her keys. She digs around in the fake dog guts since they might be in there for some reason. They actually end up being in there, but why? Why would your keys be in the fake dog guts? When Travis's twin brother Trevor shows up, how come Trevor has the same scar on his cheek? I instantly jumped on the Travis is still alive and the killer train. I got off that train after we get a dream fake out where Amy bangs Trevor until he stabs her. Unlike the first movie where you can piece together who the killer is, having the professor who's barely on screen be the culprit felt a little cheap. I love the Scream series and they pull the random character is the killer thing too though so it's not a big complaint. Reese the campus security guard from the first movie is back. Amy tells Reese there's a killer on the loose. Reese should be pretty open to the idea given what she's been through, but she brushes it off. Her actions don't make a lot of sense. The writers try to set her up as a red herring, but I never thought she was the killer. Ava Mendez is hanged and Amy completely bails on her without even seeing if she's still alive and needs assistance. Come to think of it, Amy doesn't even warn anyone there's a killer on the loose, which leads to some avoidable deaths. Maybe people being murdered around you is a good reason to put your movie on hold. Both movies have unsympathetic final girls. I didn't like Natalie or Amy. Some hilarious moments in Final Cut include a man being karate chopped to the ground, a random mask that's a skull version of Mac Tonight, that moon man from McDonald's, which comes out of nowhere, and the killer wearing a wig and hat on top of the fencing mask in order to blend in with some animatronic miners. I wish the movie purposefully leaned more into comedy. Even though it's nowhere near a perfect movie, I enjoyed my viewing of Urban Legends Final Cut. If you check out the first movie and have a hankering for more, I think you'll like this one. I don't have high hopes for the direct-to-DVD Urban Legends Bloody Mary, but stick around for that. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like a team-up film with Brenda and Professor Solomon we all crave. I would have loved a tongue-in-cheek third movie where the first two killers are a murderous duo. It was even set up in Final Cut. C'est la vie. Number 3, The Field Guide to Evil 2018, directed by, I'm gonna try my best here, Ashim Aluwalia, Can Evrenal, Severin Fiala, Veronica Franz, Katrin Gebe, Calvin Reeder, Agnieszka Smoksinska, Peter Strickland, and Giannis Veslamis. A girl summons a trud by doing lesbian activity. A pregnant girl takes care of her grandma and has a baby. She then murders a goat and is tricked into jumping into a well by a djinn who steals the baby. A ghost jumps on a man's back and tells him he'll know everything if he eats three hearts from the freshly deceased. He grave robs to eat the hearts and ends up in a dungeon where he provides knowledge to his captors. Melonheads, strange cannibal kids that live in a forest, murder a boy's parents. The boy is turned into a melonhead by a strange doctor. A dude named Panagus and his drunk friends take a goblin back to a place where the underground is found. Panagus then goes underground to hell and worships a blue flame forever. Two people working for the circus go to a palace in India where an eccentric man built a palace of horrors. One of the men go into a basement to look at something he was warned not to look at. The other man finds the first man with his eyes ripped out. 
Two siblings are being tormented by a druid. The sister is possessed by it, and if the druid is killed, she'll die. The brother kisses the druid out of his sister, and the sister shoots and kills the brother. Two cobblers are trying to win a princess's affection. The princess likes one brother who asks the king if he can marry her. The king sends him to a lake to get a flower. At the lake, the brother is seduced by water ladies. The princess's crow sees this. The other brother tells the princess his brother died, so she kills herself. The dead princess then kills the one brother for lying, and the other brother because he gave in a temptation. The king has them made into slippers. The girl that was pregnant, Melonheads, a druid, and the undead princess are the killers. The girl that was pregnant murdered an innocent goat. Two innocent goats die in this anthology. I'm not blaming anyone for the other goat's death because I'm not 100% sure who got that goat. The druid is listed as a killer because it made the sister kill the brother. If she didn't kill him, the druid would have eventually killed everything around it. The Field Guide to Evil is an anthology with eight parts from all over the world. You got Austria, Turkey, Poland, America, Greece, India, Germany, and Hungary. Like almost all modern horror anthologies for some weird reason, The Field Guide to Evil is disappointing. Most of the stories are forgettable and some are just plain bad. Here are the worst of the bunch. Whatever happened to Panagus the Pagan, which is the goblin one, is a mess. It shot poorly and barely has a plot. Multiple times throughout the short, people shout they are going to mess up a goblin, which is humorous but not enough to save this. The designs are decent, but the terrible cinematography doesn't give you time to dwell on the designs. Haunted by Al Karisi, the childbirth jinn is also not great. The jinn design is boring. There is a lot of room for creativity when designing an old lady goat hybrid, and what's shown in the short is uninspired. A lot of shots are poorly lit. This short was directed by Baskin director Ken Avernal, so the lackluster design is surprising. The other big stinker is A Nocturnal Breath. Unfortunately for this one, the first short in the anthology pulled from the same folklore. There's a pet warning for this one. The druid infects a poor wolf dog, so the boy owner has to put the dog out of its misery with a knife. It's sad. The first short has a much spookier creature design, so when I got to A Nocturnal Breath and saw everything being caused by a tiny little mouse druid, I wasn't impressed. I like the idea of someone being kept alive by an entity that leaves the body in a corpse-like state whenever said entity exits the host. That aspect was really cool. It's not expanded on enough though. The short that does a much better job with its druid or trude is the sinful woman of Hallfall. The plot of this short is a little confusing, but the creature reveal is disturbing and great. The creature is a girl whose jaw is replaced by a hole with teeth. It's messed up. It's the only good thing in this short, which also includes the first of two back-to-back -back dream fakeouts, which I despise. The one with the childbirth gin that directly follows the previous mentioned short also has a dream fake out. Both shorts also include goat deaths, so I was wondering if that theme was going to continue. Thankfully, only two sweet sweet goats perish. 
Regarding the sinful woman of Hallfall, the creature and scene where our main character furiously starts jilling off while holding a knife to try and summon the creature for murdering makes this short a lot of fun. The hilarious juxtaposition between the horrifying creature and furious jilling was appreciated, though probably unintentional. Another middle-of-the-line short that is saved by a hilarious element is The Kindler and the Virgin. Right off the bat, a ghost drops onto a man's back out of nowhere and tells him to eat three hearts to become all-knowing. Dude, you can't trust the words of a drop goth. I found the drop goth to be comedic gold as well as the first time the man tries to eat a heart. He starts throwing up in comedic fashion. The ghost never said you couldn't cook the hearts. I don't think she said they had to be human hearts either. The best shorts are Beware the Melonheads and The Cobbler's Lot. Melonheads is by far the funniest short. I've been going back and forth between whether or not the creators intended the short to be hilarious and have decided they must have because its comedy is perfectly crafted. From the wine-drinking mom throwing a soccer ball for her kid to chase into the woods before walking off, to the random hiker that pops up out of nowhere and tells the boy, You can't pee out there, son. Melonhead starts off with subtle humor and then hits you in the face, er, head, with a shot of a ridiculous-looking Melonhead child. Of all the shorts, I recommend you actually seek out Beware the Melonheads and The Cobbler's Lot. The Cobbler's Lot is a silent film with inner titles for dialogue. Even though the character's dialogue is silent, certain sound effects are included and over-exaggerated for comedic effect. One of the brothers trashes a room two separate times, and sound effects make the destruction absolutely hilarious. Both brothers, who I forgot to mention look like Robert Smith, are stabbed to death by the undead princess, and the stabbing sound effects are amplified, over-the-top, and funny. Peter Strickland directed this short, and the amazing design and humor have rallied me to check out his new horror comedy, In Fabric, whenever it comes out. Unfortunately, as a whole, the field guide to evil drags due to weak segments. You'll get tired and bored with the same lame shot of a book opening and closing as a framing device. Why the framing isn't in the same vein as the beautiful opening credits, I have no idea. Even though I think The Field Guide to Evil is kind of terrible as a whole, I still recommend checking it out if you're a horror fan due to the different cultures represented. It's cool to see all these shorts from different regions, even if some of the shorts aren't all that memorable. If you want to save time and only watch the cream of the crop, check out Beware the Melonheads and The Cobbler's Lot. Maybe The Sinful Woman of Hawthall too, but just for the spooky reveal. Number 4, Urban Legends, Bloody Mary, 2005, directed by Mary Lambert. Some football bros drug some girls. One of the girls, Mary Banner, doesn't take the drugs and rightfully freaks out when she sees her passed out friends dragged into a car. The head football bro punches Mary. Thinking he killed her, he hides her body in a trunk and locks it. Mary dies in the trunk. Years later, different football bros roofie and abandon some girls in a basement to freak them out. After this, one of the girls, Samantha, starts having strange visions. The football bros and one of their girlfriends start being mysteriously killed. Sam and her brother David try to figure out what's going on. One of the original girls named Grace reveals Mary's ghost is behind the desk. Mary is killing the original football bros' kids. David is killed by a man. 
Sam finds Mary's body and attempts to bury it. Her stepfather, Bill Owens, shows up and tries to kill her. It's revealed that Bill Owens was the head football bro back in the day and also David's killer. Mary's ghost kills Bill. Bill Owens and Mary Banner are the killers. First things first, did they correctly capture the Bloody Mary legend this time around? Nope. Sam just says Bloody Mary three times during a slumber party. No mirror or darkness is involved. How are you going to title your movie Urban Legends, Bloody Mary, and totally beef the actual summoning ritual? This isn't even the first time this series has screwed it up. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't know you're supposed to, in modern times at least, go into a bathroom, turn off the lights, and say Bloody Mary three times. They should have called this movie Urban Legends a ghost girl named Mary, since it ends up having nothing to do with the actual Bloody Mary summoning. I'd say that Urban Legends Bloody Mary is in the so bad it's good camp. The acting is laughably bad throughout from everyone except Kate Mara who plays Samantha. She's good in this. That's probably why she's the only recognizable face. Well, Bill Owens is played by Ed Marinero, who was the coach in Blue Mountain State. He's alright. Everyone else, though, has the hammiest delivery of all time. I'd blame the writing, but Kate Mara at least tried. The others could have, too. It's impossible for me to talk about this movie without bringing up the CGI. Holy moly, is there some of the worst CGI I've ever seen in UL Bloody Mary. I'll start with the worst offender. During the climax, Bill Owens is basically killed by a CGI phantom dirt tornado abomination that is so ugly and horribly done, I couldn't believe it made it into the movie. Another awful CGI segment is when one of the football bros' girlfriends squeezes a spider bite on her cheek. Y'all know where this is headed. Spider bite on the cheek? A ton of baby spiders are going to burst out. Welp, you'd be wrong here. Instead of baby spiders, Fully grown, obvious CGI spiders start popping out. An absurd amount keep crawling their way out of the wound. Eventually, the girl headbutts a mirror, which leads to two mirror shards implanted in her forehead. The girl then rips them out in a way that takes her face with them. Under her face, oodles and oodles of more fully grown spiders, of course. Even though the CGI and effects work here is pretty terrible, the sequence is inherently terrifying. The mere headbutt is absolutely hilarious though. I'm not sure why they couldn't track down at least one real spider for the scene where one crawls out of the doll's mouth. Besides these two awful forays into CGI, we also get some bad CGI applied to Ghost Mary at times. The whole design of Ghost Mary is terrible. She doesn't look scary and the design isn't even consistent throughout the film. For some reason, unlike the other movies in the series, Bloody Mary is set at a high school instead of a college. No one passes for a high schooler. None of the other films had supernatural elements either. Bloody Mary tries to make a callback to the first movie. Samantha receives an article that says a serial killer professor went on an urban legend murder spree at Pendleton University. Silly Bloody Mary, Brenda was the killer at Pendleton, the professor was the killer in Final Cut, which was set at a different university. Pet warning, we get the real, people can lick too, 
dog kill in this movie. It's set up by showing us a football bro who's just chilling, eating snacks, drinking a 40, and watching porn while having his hand licked by his dog. It's weird. Speaking of weird, another bro is burnt to a crisp in a tanning bed. The reveal of his burnt corpse got a good laugh out of me, but before he's turned into Mr. Crispy, there's a long POV shot of him inside the tanning bed from the feet end. Dude's junk and feet is all you see for a good 30 seconds. Weird camera placement for sure. This isn't the only foot scene. There's also a shot of Grace wiggling her foot. I guess Mary Lambert decided to channel Tarantino. Did you catch that, listener? Urban Legends Bloody Mary is directed by someone named Mary. That's fun. Mary Lambert has directed some other big-name horror movies, so I'm not sure what went wrong here. She directed Pet Cemetery and the much more prestigious Halloween Town 2, Calabar's Revenge. I love those movies. The music in Urban Legends Bloody Mary is cheesy beyond belief, which really heightens the comedy. The gore? It's mostly awful, but one character's arm is broken, which looked good. Urban Legends Bloody Mary is a bad movie, but a fun watch. I wouldn't recommend seeking it out, but if it magically appears in front of your face, give it a chance. It looks like one more movie was planned in the series. It was supposed to be called Urban Legends Goldfield Murders, but ended up being released as Ghosts of Goldfield. It looks god-awful, and since it dropped Urban Legends from its name, I don't feel obligated to watch it. Number 5, I'm Just Effing With You, 2019, directed by Adam Mason. An internet troll named Larry decides to go to his ex's wedding. On the way, he stays at a motel and meets a guy named Chester who says he's standing in for the owners and a biker who's hanging out at the motel. Chester messes with Larry. Larry's sister Rachel shows up. Chester continues messing with both of them. Chester murders the biker. Chester also killed the owners. Chester kills a sheriff. Chester reveals to the world that Larry is a notorious internet troll and kills Rachel. Larry and Chester then get in Rachel's car and head to the wedding. Larry crashes into a wall which kills Chester since the passenger airbag is broken. Larry then disappears. Chester is the killer. I'm going to refer to this movie as Chester for the rest of this section because Chester is the movie. Chester single-handedly carries I'm Just Effing With You. Chester is a treasure. He's played by Hayes MacArthur. MacArthur was also in Director's Cut, a movie previously covered on this podcast. Without looking at his credits, I never would have realized it was the same person. Chester is the best performance I've ever seen from him. Chester is charismatic and psychotic. By placing the movie on his back, Chester saves I'm Just Effing With You from being yet another trash Hulu Into the Dark movie. I can confidently say that I'm Just Effing With You is the best Into the Dark movie at this time. I know that's not exactly saying much given the quality of the other films in the series, but it's a super entertaining movie. I do have some gripes with it. I wish Larry had died horribly. At least his life ends up ruined. Larry is played by Keir O'Donnell. He doesn't do a good job. Cat recognized him from his amazing role in one of the worst horror movies ever made, Amusement. He was the killer in that movie. I'll be honest, I myself didn't watch Amusement in full, but I watched a long review of it done by Your Movie Sucks. I recommend checking out his review of Amusement. 
I know you're supposed to hate Larry, but I just hated O'Donnell. Jessica McNamee plays Rachel, and she's fine. Everyone but O'Donnell shows up. Chester is barely a horror movie. Sure, people are murdered, but at no point in the film is there any sense of dread or suspense. Whenever Chester messes with somebody, or winks, or does anything really, a sound effect of an eagle screech is played. It's funny and the perfect level of cheesiness. I want to go on the record and say Chester did nothing wrong. He's the hero of this film. So what if he killed at least five people? The kills in this are mostly off-screen. We are shown the bodies of the motel owners and Rachel. The only on-screen deaths are the biker and cop. The biker is stabbed in the ear, which is fine. Practical effects are used, but it's a rather boring kill. The sheriff dies after Chester puts one of those zip-tie things tightly around the poor soul's neck. The idea of having someone sneak up behind you and strangle you with a device that is difficult to remove without having some sort of cutting tool ready is horrifying. No real gore for that kill, understandably. Even the bodies that are shown barely have any gore, so if you're a gore fiend you won't be satisfied with what Just Effing has to offer. Back to dogging on Larry for a second. He's shown to be a germaphobe. Why would a germaphobe stay in a cheap motel like this? Why would you leave a scathing review of the motel on Yelp right after checking in? You're like one of two people there and the biker obviously isn't a Yelper. Larry is the worst. I'm Just Effing With You is an entertaining watch due to Chester's amazing charisma. Chester is the bester. Give this a watch if you're looking for some moderate horror entertainment. Maybe the rest of Hulu Into the Dark movies won't be complete trash after all. Number 6, Pet Cemetery, 2019, directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmire. A doctor named Lewis, his wife Rachel, and their kids Ellie and Gage move to a wooded area in Maine. They meet their neighbor Judd and find out about a pet cemetery by their house. Church, the family cat, dies, so Judd takes Lewis to an ancient burial ground. Church comes back to life, but is a different cat. A big rig truck almost runs over Gage, so the driver slams on the brakes, which flips the truck and sends its load sliding into Ellie, which instantly kills her. Lewis digs up her body after the funeral and buries her in the ancient burial ground, which is sour. Ellie comes back and kills Judd. She then kills her mom and buries her in the sour ground. Ellie and mom then kill and bury the rest of the family. Two drivers, a faulty dumbwaiter, undead Ellie, and her undead mom are the killers. Besides the truck driver, another driver hits and kills a kid named Victor Pascal who haunts Lewis. Rachel's sister Zelda dies after falling into a dumbwaiter shaft for some unknown reason. I'm assuming that everyone listening to this section has seen the original movie. I have never read the book myself, so all I really have to go off of is the first movie and this new adaptation. Before I watched the new Pet Cemetery, I was 100% sure this movie was going to be Cat Dookie. The trailers for it are some of the worst I have ever seen. Almost every single scare is shown and accompanied by obnoxious loud bursts of sound in the trailer. Luckily, this movie doesn't blast your eardrums nearly as much as the trailers. There are still quiet and loud jump scares, but most of those include big rigs that are barreling down the road, which makes sense. I've been looking at other opinions on the film and I'm kind of shocked at the amount of hate it's getting. New Pet Cemetery 
isn't some amazing movie. It's missing a lot of beats. We barely get any history from Judd. It doesn't seem like Judd and Lewis are friends at all, which makes the part where Lewis blindly follows Judd in the dead of night to a specific spot to bury Church feels out of character. Even if I was good friends with someone, you can bet your bottom dollar that I'm not going to slog through a swamp in the middle of the night to bury a cat. Pet warning real quick, a dead cat is shown to no one's surprise. It's not that bad. Back to what I was saying, since there doesn't appear to be any friendship between Lewis and Judd, you expect Lewis to tell Judd to go to hell while burying the cat in the very convenient pet cemetery. One thing that helped me suspend my disbelief is the idea that Lewis and Judd felt compelled to go to the burial ground. That's a fine conclusion, I guess, but I wish the film better represented Lewis's compulsion to seek the burial ground out. Having never read the book, I don't know if Pet Cemetery can work as a horror movie. I've seen a lot of people say it's the scariest thing they've ever read, but having only seen Mary Lambert's original take, Yes, the same Mary Lambert that directed Bloody Mary, totally unplanned connection. I believe the best way to capture Pet Cemetery would be a straight up horror comedy. There are multiple scenes in the film where I could see an easy jump cut joke being added. After the funeral, Rachel and Gage go to her parents' house. This doesn't make a lot of sense in this version since Lewis and Rachel aren't shown fighting and Rachel says that her childhood home is incredibly traumatizing due to Zelda and the death Rachel kind of caused and whatnot. Anyway, after they get in the car and start driving off, a jump cut to Lewis in the graveyard holding a shovel looking left and right to make sure no one is watching him about to grave rob would have been hilarious. Judd thinks Lewis is going to try and resurrect Ellie. Lewis goes over to Judd's and drugs some liquor to make him pass out. When Judd comes to, a jump cut of him kicking in Lewis's door, flashing a revolver, shouting, Ellie, I have a present for you, would have been a fantastic moment. There are already scenes in the movie that are funny given the circumstances. After Ellie comes back from the grave, she asks Lewis, Am I dead? Which he practically gives a, What? No, 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 what? Response to that which almost made me burst out laughing in the theater. Right after this, zombie Ellie asks him to lay in bed with her, and the shot of him all uncomfortable laying next to his corpse daughter is comedic. You can still have your horror elements in a horror comedy. I like the kills. Ellie kills Judd by slashing his Achilles tendon with the scalpel, then viciously stabs him all over. She then stabs her mom to death with a kitchen knife. The kill looks good even though it was really dumb that Rachel decided to barricade a door, put her back to it, and then throw Gage out a window to Lewis instead of holding the door shut and waiting for help. To be fair, as soon as Rachel sees Ellie, it's dumb that she goes upstairs with Gage at all instead of instantly dashing to the car. Ellie banging up against the barricaded door like a wild child was a nice touch. Zombie Rachel shoves a rebar cross from the pet cemetery through Lewis, which is fun. The gore for the mangled Victor Pascal looks creepy, even though it didn't make a lot of sense for someone that was hit by a car. The design for Zelda is better than I expected, but I didn't find it all that haunting. At one point, Lewis pins Zombelli to the ground and she flails all over the place unnaturally fast, which is a cool idea. But the execution was laughably bad. I'm not a fan of random actions being sped up. 
Most of the acting was solid. Jete Lawrence plays Ellie and does pretty decent for a child actor. The kids they got to play Gage looked exactly like Gage in the original. Amy Simetz is Rachel. Her performance is the best of the bunch. I wasn't a fan of John Lithgow as Judd. I think that's more of an issue with the writing though. Jason Clark plays Lewis and boy oh boy was he bad. He barely keeps his American accent straight. The movie would have definitely benefited from a better lead. Regarding the change from Gage to Ellie, I'm cool with it. I wish the awful trailers didn't give it away. I hated the inclusion of the dumb kids funeral procession with the creepy masks. It didn't make any sense. Who dropped these kids off here? We were given an aerial view of the property and no houses besides Judd's were close. I appreciated that Ellie wasn't straight up run over by the big rig. Her body should still be pretty messed up after being smacked by the big tank it was transporting, but at least it's not like the original in which Gage gets decimated by a truck and only comes back with a tiny scar. Ellie should definitely be more messed up, but at least we get to see the huge staples in the back of her head as Louis bays her. I thought the hair brushing in that scene was genuinely creepy. Speaking of hair brushing, Ellie brushes Zombie Church who has a knot in his hair. Ellie tries to power through the knot which makes Church scratch her. Any cat would scratch the brusher in that situation. Zombie Ellie taunting people and turning into Judd's wife was awesome. I went in with the lowest possible expectations for Pet Cemetery and found it to be an okay horror movie. I didn't love it or hate it. I think it'll be quickly forgotten. I'm not sure why the dudes that directed Starry Eyes were given this property. I wouldn't run out to the theater to see Pet Cemetery 2019, but it's not the worst thing you could eventually stream at home. Actually, this new adaptation didn't have the quote, Today is Thanksgiving Day for cats, but only if they came back from the dead. 0 out of 10, don't waste your time. Number 7, Ultra Instinct Sabrina. The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Season 2 is out on Netflix, and I've been watching it. She has white hair now, so I've been calling her Ultra Instinct Sabrina. It's one of my favorite things to say that makes everyone else hate me. So far, I'm 5 episodes in. Gee whiz are Sabrina episodes long. I swear that at least 20 minutes could be cut from every episode, and nothing of value would be lost. The season starts out with Sabrina trying to become top boy at her magical school. I think the title Top Boy is so funny. <laughs> I've begun using it as a term of endearment. We're introduced to an all-boys club bar ran by Dorian Gray. I was disappointed that it wasn't called Dorian Gays because it's heavily implied it's supposed to be a gay club. Sabrina comes in and is the catalyst for women being allowed. Selfish Sabrina walks into a gay club and gets mad that it doesn't cater to her, a straight girl. My head canon is that Dorian realized he could make a lot more money if he let everyone in. At one point, Dorian Gray is shown interacting with his painting. If you know anything about Dorian Gray, you know that he has a painting of himself that incurs all his pain and aging. There's a catch though, he can never look at the painting or all the bad stuff will be reapplied to him. He totally sees his painting in Sabrina and nothing happens. In the first episode, Sabrina is attacked by three of the kings of hell, Asmodeus, Beelzebub, and Person. From Wikipedia, Person, also Cursin or Persan, is a great king of hell. 
being served and obeyed by 22 legions of demons, he knows of hidden things, can find treasures, and tells past, present, and future. Taking a human or aerial body, he answers truly of all secret and divine things of earth and the creation of the world. He also brings good familiars. Person is depicted as a man with the face of a lion, carrying a ferocious viper in his hand, and riding a bear. Before him, there can be heard many trumpets sounding. Yeah, I had uh, never heard of him. Now we all know, Person. All the kings look like peasants and wear the same ugly coats. Sure, they had horns on their head that kind of resembled crowns, but I really hated their designs. Way to make the kings of hell look and sound super lame, Sabrina. Sabrina thinks someone summoned them, and I was like, you can't summon the kings of hell. They do what they want. They were doing what they wanted. Zelda is still a badass. Sure, she ends up marrying Blackwood, but she only does so for power. Hilda is way cooler this season. She even straight up murders someone. You go, Hilda. Sabrina has a new boyfriend, Nick Scratch, and he's way better than Harvey. There's an episode where a bunch of characters get their fortunes read, and when it was Harvey's turn, I really thought the teller wouldn't be able to read his future because he was too dumb. My favorite thing ever happens in episode 2. After signing the Book of the Beast, Sabrina knew that someday Satan would come to her and ask her to do something. It's time to pay the piper. Satan shows up and asks Sabrina to do something truly heinous and evil. He asks her to steal a pack of gum. Sabrina is talked out of doing it by Madam Satan, though. From that point onwards, whenever Satan shows up, all I can think about is how badly he wants some gum. There's some more death in this season, and it seems like there's a lot less out-of-focus scenes than in the first. All in all, Sabrina is still a cheesy cornball mess, but it's also still entertaining. I'm looking forward to more zaniness in the second half of the season. Will Satan ever get his gum? Tune in next time to the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Episode 42 is now dead and buried. For those of you that were hyped for me to cover either Critters, Ghoulies, or The Purge, my B. Kat was the only one that voted for an eligible series. She voted for The Purge, then told me she changed her mind. I honestly don't care about The Purge series. There was also a vote for Puppet Master, but there's no way that's happening. At least, not for a long time. It wasn't even a choice. If you like this episode or any other of Blank is the Killer, be a true pal and rate it on iTunes. I haven't received a new rating in months. I hunger for ratings. As always, thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website. I recently wrote a quick article about my top 5 favorite movies that you can check out on there. Bet you can't guess what they are. Blank is the Killer will be back with a new episode on April 21st. Until then, please stop burying corpses in that old sour burial ground. Judd, how many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? <laughs>